Welcome to the Montana Middle, your podcast for Montana politics. I'm your host, Dan West. Today's episode features Montana Mint political correspondent, John Hansen. You may recall John joined me on two previous episodes to give overviews of the U.S. Senate and House primary races, and he's back on today to do a primary recap. We'll also discuss the state legislature a little bit. Before getting to that, a quick word about our sponsor, the Montana Mint, and the D.C. Update. In its quest to bring the best of Montana to the internet, the Montana Mint supports this podcast. Together, we are striving to make Montana politics more accessible for all Montanans. To keep up with interesting Montana news, check out the Montana Mint at www.montana-mint.com and subscribe to their newsletters about Montana sports and politics. And check out their Montana sports podcast called Montana Mint Sports. Here's the D.C. update. Senator Tester is taking on the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Mick Mulvaney, who has proposed eliminating the Office of Students and Young Consumers. In just the last few months, American students took on $29 billion dollars in student loan debt, bringing the national total to a shocking $1.5 trillion. That is why it makes no sense that the budget director is decimating one of our country's main student loan watchdogs. Acting Director Mick Mulvaney announcing he is moving the CFPB's student loan division into the Bureau's Consumer Information Unit. This is part of an ongoing effort by the Trump administration to have the Bureau spend less time enforcing rules and simply provide information to consumers instead. Since 2011, the Office of Students and Young Consumers has investigated more than 50,000 student loan-related complaints. Their work has led to high-profile settlements and more than $750 million for students harmed by bad actors. Whether it's a four-year degree, a two-year degree, or a training certificate, education must be affordable. It's a key to unlocking success and prosperity. That's why we need to be doing more to help the folks struggling with student loan debt, not less. And that's why I'm holding the budget director accountable to Montana students and families who are struggling to make ends meet. Senator Daines has offered a slate of forest management provisions to the Senate version of the 2018 Farm Bill. This is a committee on agriculture, nutrition, and forestry. Uh, I do believe the forestry title could be stronger. Well, I'm grateful that it includes my legislation with Senator Klobuchar to empower state foresters to do cross-boundary work. I do believe we could do much more to restore active management of our national forest. Forestry is a crop. You plant it, you harvest it. That's why it's part of this committee. I'd like to address three common misperceptions that I often encounter as we think about national forest policy. First, is that the timber wars of a previous generation are still going on today. If you believe that, you know, put on your ABBA and your Olivia Newton-John music and have the debate. But in reality, in Montana and across the West, we are seeing extensive collaboration between conservation, wildlife, wood product stakeholders, along with counties working together to determine responsible forest management practices. We should not allow extremists to obstruct their work. This leads to the second myth, which is that restoring active management is just a code phrase for excessive logging. Actually, active management is critical to restoring healthy forests, which has widespread benefits, clean air, better fish and wildlife habitat, the outdoor economy, clean water, 
and wood products jobs. And most important, active management enhances public safety by reducing the threat of wildfire. A healthy forest is a carbon sink. A wildfire is an incredible emitter of carbon. The third, the third false impression is that accelerating restoration projects shortchanges the public process. It currently takes 18 to 24 months to do most environmental reviews, and that's, after that's done, many projects in Montana are litigated, which can add years of delays. In fact, right now as I sit here this morning, 29 timber sales in Montana alone are currently impacted by fringe litigation. Unfortunately, the fringe litigators and those extreme environmental groups have a disproportionate voice right here in this city that stop a lot of common sense forest management reforms. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Stabenow, reducing red tape and combating chronic litigation does not erode public input. It safeguards it. It does so by ensuring the public feedback of the majority isn't obstructed by a few extreme dissenters. And to be clear, robust science-driven environmental review and public engagement would still occur under every proposal I bring up today. And with that, I yield back my 13 seconds, Mr. Chairman. Congressman Gianforte went to the House floor a week earlier to call for forest management reform as well. Mr. Speaker, I rise today urging the Senate to take up the forest reform that this forest reforms that this chamber passed more than seven months ago. Last year, wildfires burned more than 1.2 million acres in Montana, an area the size of the state of Delaware. I met with the firefighters on the ground and saw the devastation. I heard from families anxious about the dangerous air quality impacting their kids. I listened to the hardworking Montanans worried that their livelihoods would go up in flames. Montana survived last year's devastating fire season. Our communities pulled together, helping neighbor to neighbor, just as Montanans do. The bad news is that forecasters project another severe fire season this year. We need to start managing our forests again. While there's been some problems, more work remains to improve the health of our forests and reduce the severity of wildfires. I call on the Senate to end the obstruction and pass forest management reforms. Montanans need them to act. Thank you, and Mr. Speaker, I yield. I totally agree that forest management reform is needed, and I hope Congress can implement some practical solutions. But it's hard for me to follow the argument that cutting down trees is the best response to wildfire. It's true that if you cut down the trees, then they can't burn. But wildfire is a natural part of the forest life cycle. And as long as there are forests, there will be forest fires. And that is a risk that people who choose to live in the woods have to accept. That's it for the DC update. Here's my conversation with Montana Mint political correspondent, John Hansen. so much for coming back on the show. Dan, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, live blogging with you the other night. And, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, our listeners should should check out the the feed from our live blog. It's up on the Montana Mint website. Yeah, it ended up being uh, really well researched by everyone. We had a lot of our contributors on. And um, yeah, we got, some, uh, we got some good stuff up there. Yeah, it was fun, and it was a good exercise for the for the general election, so I think we're going to do right, something yeah, similar. Right, yeah, because we'll definitely want to be giving everyone a live block from the general with analysis and as much, you know, information as we can possibly glean from, um, you know, 
as po- as much as we can possibly glean. So, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. All right, well, thanks for coming back on. And, and today we're gonna we're gonna sort of divide up the main section of the podcast into two parts. The first part is gonna be a primary recap on the on the Senate and the House races, and then the second part is gonna begin to scratch the surface of the the beast that we we call the Montana state legislature. Absolutely. The enigma wrapped in a mystery. (laughs) It's that's part of why we do this though, you know, because it doesn't get the coverage it really deserves, you know, it really Um, doesn't. And uh, we won't get through all of it today, but I hope you can come back on soon and, and we can, we can keep chipping away at, at uh, what's, what's a very important piece of our, of our state that I, I don't think, as you said, gets as much attention yeah, as it that's, deserves. And that's probably true in most Western states or most rural states, you know, unless it's the California Assembly or something that has a lot of, you know, money and attention, um, you know, local races kind of do get lost in the shuffle sometimes. So yeah. it's, good, it's good to talk about these important elected officials. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with the primary recap. Uh, it was an exciting night. You know, we saw we saw some surprising results. I think what what was really surprising was how low the voter turnout was, although maybe I shouldn't be so surprised because it was just a midterm election primary. But, you know, I looked I looked at that 2014. Um, it's actually ticked up a little because I'm trying to think of a year where we're off presidentials and we're in a primary. Um, so it was it was a little higher turnout than 2014, if that okay. means anything. Um, yeah. You know, obviously it was down from the primaries in 2016 or the ones in 2012. Yeah, um, so more people turn out during presidential elections. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was 41% of Montana voters this year. There's about, there's 679,000 registered voters in Montana, 283,000 voted last Tuesday. Uh, what what was the number in 2014? Do you remember that? Uh, 2014, 34 percent oh wow that was low so we're so we're up six percent okay so that's good we had i looked down the list i know and you're kind of got into ancient history here but back in the 90s we had some that were 45 or things like that so it 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 seems like it's um above average uh, Mm um but not a huge turnout okay Um, yep well you always wish more people would participate but yep well you know the um uh let's see um, you know, Montana does, obviously, in the general 2016, I looked at this, national turnout in Montana, eh, or national turnout in 2016 was 58%. Montana, that was 75%, 74.55. Wow. So um, so definitely Montana's, um, you know, we, we do vote. I, I think that if we looked at the primary results from other states, we'd be shocked about how low they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> because I, I don't think the Montanans are just, uh, uh, you know, um, lacking in the primaries. I think that that is a relatively high turnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, so what happened? Let's, let's talk about it. The Senate primary, uh, who won John? Uh, Matt Rosendale, of course. He is a statewide elected official. He had the best name recognition out of all the batch, either House or Senate races. He was backed by national Republicans. He um, had a lot going for him. And he's a Trump Republican, which Montanans like. Um, In this cycle, I think that's going to basically work for him, but I'll talk about that a little more. 
Um, he probably didn't, people probably didn't expect Russ Fag to do as well as he did, hmm. who's pretty much the anti Trump Republican of this race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Fag pivoted a little bit and he had that controversial ad that most people viewed as racist. And kind of, I think that was sort of Fag's trying to um, become more Trump like. But, you know, um, I think that, um, you know, Rosendale did well but i think he could have got i think he could have done better i think there were a lot of montana republicans that were looking for a more of a rock mark roscoe type republican and that's why fag got 30 percent of the vote and matt rosendale got 33.8 yeah interesting yeah 29.3 so not quite 30 percent for russ fag okay i mean he crushed turnout he crushed the uh, yellowstone county of course election almost almost 60 percent there but Mm-hmm. Yeah, came came in a distant second in a, in a lot of other counties. I will say Al Oshevsky won his home county, Flathead County, and right. uh, and you know Troy Downing, Troy Downing still put up a, a solid a, a solid fight. I think uh, it, it was great to have all four of them on this spring. Yeah, that's awesome that you got all four of the Republican candidates on. Um, Listen to all of those. I think that I mean Downing definitely got the least bang for his buck though. He, you know, he got marginally the same results as Oshesky with 4.5 times the spending. Um, you know, That's a good um, point. yeah, Olszewski, um, I think 18.7% is pretty good for, um, what he raised and, um, the kind of campaign he ran, but, uh, Downing raised, remember more money than even Matt Rosendale and still, you know, was um, you know, way, way, back, way in the back at the end of the day. And he's the most, obviously Downing was the most Trump. Yeah, that's a good camp. point. That's a good point to make too. Well, so we'll see how it plays out. And uh, I mean, I guess you'll have to come back on. We can do a more thorough analysis of, of the Senate general election, but let's move on to the house primary where there was actually some excitement there. Right. Absolutely. There, um, Kathleen Williams, the story of the Montana 2018 elections, I'm sure of it. Um, she um, ended up edging out two candidates that raised more money than her, uh, Grant Keir of Missoula and John Heenan of Billings. I don't think anyone expected it. I didn't expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Monta- When I wrote in the Montana Men hashtag MT poll, um, you know, I kind of put her as a middle of the pack candidate. Um, and I think that that's how everyone viewed it, but she surprised us all. Um, you know, she didn't raise a lot of money, but sometimes if you raise enough and you use it correctly, um, you know, you can achieve some remarkable results. And I, I know, I think sometimes I know that the viewers of this or the listeners of this podcast probably have pretty sophisticated thoughts about politics, but the reason we talk about money all the time is there's just very few metrics for these people that we don't know much about. You know, they have their internal polling that we never see. Um, There's very little public polling. So it's just one of the things that we can sort of grab onto to catch, uh, you know, to glean some uh, meaning from. Mm -hmm. And so it's surprising, you know, when, um, you know, I think it was 3.3 times more money raised by the front runner and then two and a half by Keir. So she did a lot with very little resources. Um, and it's, you know, it's remarkable and it's, it's definitely, you know, we're seeing it all over. Women are winning a lot of races. Mm -hmm. Um, even in the, you know, um, 
Montana to win the, the legislature, which we'll talk about later, you know, winning all 15 races in which they had um, a woman running in the primary. Mm. Um, that's de- that's the Democrats. Yeah. Well, that, so yeah, it seems like she hit that sweet spot. You know, women are, are, so, are probably the most energized voting demographic this year. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. Like, we don't know that for a fact in Montana yet. You know, we don't have that information but i think that that's a reasonable thing to uh conclude from this election result yeah is that there's a lot of voting uh, i mean part of that that's obviously not the only reason she i think she did a very oh yeah job no. of telling her personal story um and also i feel like kind of split the middle of a very kind of bernie sandra's liberal heenan and a very sort of conservative Max Baucus Democrat, what we had with Keir. Um, Isn't that so st- funny too? Because Heenan is from Billings and Keir's from Missoula, and and then she's it, from Bozeman. So like the it, geographic, yeah, representation yep. too. It's like symbolic of where where she stood on, on the spectrum. Right. Um, so people maybe thought that they just they didn't want someone that conservative and they didn't want someone that liberal. So um, Kathleen is certainly that, and you know it not for nothing she's the only one in this race that has experience Um, legislative experience yeah exactly as an elected official everyone else um and even on the other side except for of course matt rosendale and russ bag was a judge too that's true um a lot lot of inexperienced candidates here so yeah you know what i think's encouraging to see though is that the matt rosendale and kathleen williams uh both won but neither of them were the front runners in fundraising. And that's for sure. I think that's encouraging. You know, it shows that that money isn't everything in, in Montana politics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that is, um, you know, people are going, to, I think it shows that people are paying attention for one mm-hmm. thing that I think that's part of what Kathleen's about is that I think voters are pretty focused mm-hmm. um, and they're judging these people for who they are and not just, getting a name um that you know and and then jotting that down yeah of course that happens in primaries because (laughs) some of these people are relatively unknown you know statewide especially true um so yeah you know she she was so consistent across the board though in in these county county results uh you know heenan won yellowstone county Keir won his home county missoula but then they just didn't perform that well in, in other major counties like like Cascade County and Great Falls is. Um, but but Kathleen Williams, she won her home county, Gallatin County, but then came in a solid second place, close second in a lot of right. in a lot of the other well, counties. Lots of second places will will win. Yeah. And then <laughs> you know, she and yeah. Not, and then she went everywhere too. She won all the small counties. Right. Yeah, she did great in the high line. Mm-hmm. Um, she did great over um, you know, those don't add up very quick, but um, I noticed that she did great in Highline in Eastern Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, it, shows, then, it shows that she it, was out there. Yeah, I think it does. It's, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, pressing flesh and meeting people face to face. When you only have a handful of voters like we do, um, that can be really effective. Um, yeah. You know, it's not like California where you have to shake 20 million voters' hands. It's not going to happen. Um <laughs> You know, here you can absolutely make a difference by just showing up, meeting people, making a good impression. 
Um, and you, you can do that just by, um, you know, putting gas in your car and going. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Well, okay. So one final, uh, point that I'd like to highlight from the outcome of the primaries is the incumbents, John Tester in the Senate race and mm -hmm. Greg Gianforte in the house. I think what's interesting, and, and I don't know if there's anything to pull from this, but a, so John Tester received 114,000 votes in the Senate yeah. primary, even though he was uncontested. Right. And in the House primary, just the next section down on your ballot, uh, combined, the House Democrats received 111,000, well, almost 112,000 votes. So Tester right. by himself received 114. The House Democratic primary candidates received less than that. Contrast that on the other side. Exactly. In the Senate primary, yep. 150,000 Republicans voted for the Senate primary candidates, but only 136,000 Republicans chose to fill in the bubble right below that for Greg Gianforte. What do you think that means, if, it, if anything? I mean... <laughs> To me, it's meaning it has meaning because uh, being someone that's worked on a lot of elections and even on small races or even initiatives or things like that, you really hate to be the last thing on the ballot or the second to last thing on the ballot because, believe it or not, people have short attention spans. Um, and for people to skip over, Gianforte was the first thing on their Republican ballot, and they chose to skip over that and then go to their candidates and vote for that. I, I think it really does show a lack of enthusiasm for Gianforte and and a little more party unity behind John Pester. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, like I don't know if you, it is um, worth reading a lot into, but I do think it's meaningful. As sixteen thousand less votes than um, than the Republican candidates got, Gianforte got sixteen thousand less votes than the Republican candidates. Um, I, maybe so, that's just because Republicans are conservative and they don't want to waste ink. That's, I mean, yeah, it could be a cost-effective thing. <laughs> no, I, I think that, you know, he is a flawed candidate, and it's, you know, it, it has a lot to do with, of course, assaulting the reporter Ben Jacobs, and I think, uh, you know, he squeaked out an election with six points against, uh, by six points against um, uh, Mission Mountain Woodband. Um, oh, Rob, Rob Quist. Quist. Yeah, um, and... Um, you know, and that's a seat that Denny Reberg won like easily all the time. The only, you know, he had a good race against Keenan, I think, or um, yeah, Nancy Keenan in 2000, mm -hmm. but the rest of the time he had no close races. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that a six point is a pretty mediocre showing uh, yeah. for the Montana at, at large uh, district. Yeah. Well, that'll give that, that's wind at Kathleen Williams back. So we'll see how yep. that. Yeah, that race absolutely. develops. It's and, exciting. You know, yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you know, now now's the time for both uh, Tester and Gianforte to attack when their candidates are low on money um, <laughs> when, mm -hmm. or when their opponents are low on money. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll see that. We'll see a ton of out-of-state money into the Senate race. I mean, I, I, I doubt we'll see, you know, it, it's a House race, so probably not that much. But I think we'll see a 2012-like um, amount of money or probably even more in, in the, um, in the race here for Senate John Tester versus Matt Rosendale. Yeah. Well, something to look forward to, I guess, if, if you love political ads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, if every time you're, uh, 
uh, playing uh, Brick Breaker on your phone, you want a political ad to interrupt it. That's uh, <laughs> that, that, it's a good news for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Let's let's talk a little bit about the state legislative uh, landscape, and and we're not going to drill down super deep in this episode, but but maybe you could just start off with with a general overview, John. Yeah, I mean, as probably most of the listeners know, Montana's got 100 representatives, uh, two-year terms, 50 state senators, to four-year terms. So it's a lot like the uh, bicameral legislature we have federally. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a little different, Mm -hmm. but it's similar in the way that we're going to elect all these representatives. So they're up, all 100 of them, and then half of our senators are up, so 25. So we're going to have 125 elections basically and throughout montana uh, republicans are controlling both those chambers um as as they typically do in a lot of these oh what would you call them these kind of purple states like montana they like to elect democrat governors and then elect republicans to the state house mm-hmm. uh, republicans control 59 to 41 in the house and then 32 to 18 in the senate mm-hmm. um and, and and i know uh, you know we were talking about before um, Democrats are unlikely to swing either of these chambers. You know, that'd be 10 seats in the House, eight in the Senate. Um, seems unlikely. Uh, we don't see any indication that there's, you know, that sort of Democratic enthusiasm. There appears to be a lot, um, but not the kind that would, um, you know, we, where we'd see. Right. Flip both that chambers. Massive blue wave in montana yeah that would be something um, so one thing that we're keeping an eye on is the two-thirds majority um which is uh the republicans only need to gain two seats in the senate um and seven in the house to override a gubern- uh, gubernatorial veto mm-hmm. um that's definitely something worth watching uh, bullock vetoes more than any other montana governor including brian schweitzer with his branding iron veto um <laughs> he, he, i mean uh, maybe Bullock doesn't do it as fun as Schweitzer did it, but he exercises it more. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's that is the big picture. I think, uh, um, as you've pointed out, to watch in the Montana legislature yeah. is can the Republicans gain the power to veto Governor Bullock, or are we kind of going to be in the basically the same situation we are now? With yeah, Democratic governor and Republicans that are sort of forced to compromise with it. You know, maybe the reason Bullock can veto more is that he doesn't have to wait for his pen to heat up that's right he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't have well and he wouldn't he probably doesn't need to call as many cameras as, as uh, schweitzer would either <laughs> that too that too because you got to go outside and right. uh, yeah that takes time yeah yeah <laughs> well okay thanks john thanks for providing that overview um so you know as john said 125 state legislative races happening this year and that sounds like a lot when you say when you say it like that and it is a lot so we're not going to cover all of them um and in this episode we just have time to to go over the senate where as john said republicans are only two seats away from gaining a veto proof majority and so there's two seats that I, I picked out that that could potentially flip. They're held by Democrats now, but Republicans are are probably going to focus on on these seats. The first one is in is in Billings, District 24. Um, John, do you want to 
you want to take it from there? Yeah, uh, Mary McNally, she's a professor and dean at MSU Billings, and she's facing uh, Tom uh, McGilvery, McGilvery, a financial advisor, minister, and a a former House uh, Republican majority leader. Mm -hmm. Um, McNally won that seat in 2014, 54% of the vote. Um, You know, it's comfortable, uh, but when you're talking about state legislative districts, you know, these things can change by a few hundred votes, um, you know. your ground game which you know as much as you can have a ground game in one of these seats um you could literally do you could swing a few hundred votes by just having a good door knocking campaign Mm -hmm. um so you know absolutely and in its billings you know we see we see a lot of moderate turnout in billings um usually usually leans right almost always but you know john tester 2012 he won that county by a couple hundred votes that's true, and Billings has a Democratic mayor now too. So that's right. It's yep. not the so Republican it is, stronghold it, it once was. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a, it's a. I think it's a real people. I think tend to think of it as conservative. I think it's a pretty moderate town generally. Well, and the um, coming back to the House race, you had the, the, the the Bernie Sanders candidate in the Democratic primary yeah. coming from Billings, yeah. and then the moderate coming yeah. out of Missoula. Yep, and then and then I know Russ Fag is from there, but the kind of the anti-Trump candidate. True. Um, That's more moderate. Of course, yeah. of course, everyone usually does well in their home county, but it, it, not for nothing. He dominated there, and that sort of, um, you know, shows that maybe they're more accustomed to a style of the George W. Bush than a Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's, uh, yeah, that's Senate District 24 in Billings. On the other side of the state, Senate District 49 in, uh, in Missoula, uh, John, what, what have you found out about that race? Uh, so 49 is a great one because it has former, uh, running back standout from university of Montana, Chase Reynolds, one of my favorite football players ever. He went to Drummond. They, him and his brother did, they won back to back class B, uh, championships. I think it was 10 man. Um, and he is running against Diane Sands, who is a veteran legislature. Um, but only pulled out her race in 2014 by 31 votes. So Chase is the uh, Republican in this race, and Diane Sands is the Democrat incumbent in Missoula. So Chase is um, uh, he um, played for University of Montana. He had a pretty successful NFL career for a small guy. I saw a lot of those um, programs in the NFL saying he's six feet tall. He is not six feet tall. I'm 72 inches. He is 70 inches. Okay. Uh, so it makes it all remark all the more remarkable that he um, had a five or six year I don't remember NFL career as a running back. He was such a relentless force. Um, but um, like like we were saying, football aside, <laughs> um, uh, then that rain recognition. Diane Sands only 31 votes her last time out. Um, and that's out of 7,000 well, was about, they cast almost 8,000 votes over there. So, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, it's a big up and it's a big leg up having name recognition in, in a race where neither person's going to raise a whole bunch of money and be able to be on television or any, you know, or launch, um, uh, you know, lots of media. They're just going to have to have a good ground game and, um, you know, debate well and it's very and um you know kind of depend on um people to make a decision based on that they're they're not going to be able to you know we have campaign finance laws in montana 
Yeah, well, (laughs) the Grizzlies had a good ground game, too, when Chase was playing for them, so. Yep, that's right. (laughs) I guess we'll see, you know, if his policy chops are anywhere as good as his ability to juke linebackers, then he might actually be able to flip this. I mean, mean, you know, I I hate to root for the Republican, but if he's he's any way as tough as he was over in Montana or where he was with St. Louis or anywhere, um, he's a force to be reckoned with, so. Great. Well, okay, so those are two seats that if Republicans can flip them and keep the rest of their seats, uh, they could get a veto-proof majority in the state Senate. But Democrats aren't going to give up that easily. And and another Senate race that I think is worth watching is up on the high line, Senate District 14. Um, It goes from, like, the northern part of Great Falls up through Liberty County to the Canadian border. Yeah, yeah. And uh, who are we seeing there, John? Um, over there we got, and Great Falls, there is uh, Democrat Paul Tuss. Mm-hmm. He's looking um, uh, to flip a seat held by Republican Russ Temple. Uh, so Temple was an appointee mm-hmm. um, to that seat last term and uh, just kind of sneaked out his primary. So, um, you know, we've all seen appointees on the federal level, on the um, district level. Um, it's... Um, an interesting position to be in. Sometimes those people are career people. And sometimes the only thing they ever do is get appointed to that seat. And you never hear from them again. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and, uh, Temple, I uh, guess has a chance to prove, prove that he, you know, is, is deserves to be there. So yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that'll be his opportunity. He, uh, yeah, it sounds like his, uh, kind of had a rough and tumble primary, but, um, it'll be his charge to see if he can hold hold a, uh, uh, seat up there and, that district, which I mean, I, I haven't looked through the legislative history or through the um, electoral history of it, but I would imagine leans right. Um, you know, if we're going uh, kind of north of Great Falls and not in town proper. Sure. Although you know, there is there is some Democratic uh, history there too. I, I believe uh, Temple's predecessor, uh, who, who was appointed, had defeated a, a sitting Democrat uh, previously. Okay. And then sure. uh, closer, you know, just one district over in, in Haver, you, you're seeing Democrats getting elected as well. So yeah. maybe, yeah, maybe you're seeing kind of a, a little blue, maybe not a wave, but a swell happening up yeah. there in north central Montana. Paul sure. Tuss versus Russ Temple. Tuss versus Russ. That's right. That's what we're going to call right. it. Well, thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate you coming back on and, and hopefully you'll you'll come back on again when we can continue this conversation, maybe do a little house state house analysis the next time. Absolutely. We'll be uh, Montana hashtag poll, Montana dash mint.com. Um, we'll be following that closely um, and really trying to dig in deep and get you guys some exclusive content on what's happening with the Montana legislator. Uh, speaking of, we got a great article by a guest contributor uh, from June 11th this month. So, um, it is about, he's on the set of uh, Costner's Yellowstone. Um, and cool. it's really cool, like exclusive reporting you wouldn't get anywhere else. You know, it's the kind of thing that Rolling Stone would have done in the 70s or 80s, but doesn't do anymore. Kind of like a real, um, learned a lot about that uh, filming in Montana and um, filming on that movie set. So um, check that out at montana-mint.com. This last word segment is from an event that happened a couple weeks ago 
when Senator Daines hosted the 2018 Montana Energy Summit in Billings. He brought in a bunch of big names, current and former senators, CEOs, and energy experts to discuss the future of energy in Montana and around the world. One speaker was Carl Borgquist, CEO of Bozeman-based Absorca Energy. He showcased his pumped hydro storage technology that he's developing in central and eastern Montana. And when we talk about energy in eastern Montana, or in Montana in general, it's almost always about coal strip. It's the second largest coal-fired power plant west of the Mississippi. It's a, a huge source of jobs for that region in the state. But the news that we hear is how the power plant there may be shutting down soon. And it's sad to see. And that's why I'm playing this clip, because I think Mr. Borquist offers a, a different narrative and some new hope for all of those energy industry workers out there in eastern Montana. Good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm Carl Borquist from Absaroka Energy. And before I start, I want you to know that I have about a 50% success rate running these slideshows at these things. So just keep that in mind. Um, the first thing I want to do is uh, sincerely thank Senator Daines for uh, having my company and me here. Um, this project that you're looking at on the slide right now is the Gordon View project, which we took through a FERC licensing process. That process is not for the faint of heart, let me tell you, and uh, the congressional delegation, and in particular Senator Daines, was an incredible help to us through that process. Um, so, Senator, wherever you are, thank you. Um, I want to just talk about a couple of the projects that we're working on in Montana um, and then hope to get some questions from you later. Uh, you're looking at a mock-up of our Gordon Butte project, which is a closed-loop pump storage facility uh, near Martinsdale. Uh, this is essentially at the north end of the Crazies. You're looking south. Um, there's a reference point there to the coal strip line. That's important because this very very large and fast-acting battery will be hooked into the backbone of the grid for uh, obvious and strategic reasons. Um, pump storage in the past was built 30 or 40 years ago to uh, provide a solution for baseload coal and nuclear so that you could keep those, well, nuclear you absolutely had to keep running. Um, but it allowed the electrons to be utilized uh, off-peak and stored and then brought back during uh, the day and, and used on-peak. The equipment we're putting into Gordon Butte uh, can provide that arbitrage and, and that uh, off-peak to on-peak shift, but it also could move very, very quickly from pumping to generating. And as the grid is evolving and disparate generation sources are coming in to the grid, uh, particularly wind and solar, the ability for uh, a pump storage to act as a shock absorber uh, and keep everything reliable is, is essential and critical. The equipment in this facility turns the same direction uh, constantly. That provides inertia, which is a sort of a technical but very important part of this technology, but it also allows it to move back and forth very quickly. And, that's the role that we think this facility will play as the grid evolves. This gives you just a little sense of where we are in the coal strip system. 
Um, you're looking at a wind profile at the bottom. You're looking at 24 hours of this equipment that we're putting into Gordon Butte in Austria in a facility called COPS. And you can see how fast the equipment can move back and forth, pumping uh, being on the bottom, generating being on the top. Lastly, um, we are working on a transmission line very quietly, but uh, in a determined fashion from Coal Strip down into Wyoming. Uh, we think that this uh, does a couple of things. One, it provides uh, access to uh, other markets for Montana. It would improve the uh, functionality of the Coal Strip system, which just terminates at the power plant right now. Um, and again, just wanted to uh, throw this slide up and uh, illuminate this in case you had any questions. I've got 12 seconds. I'm going to stop early. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the Montana Middle. Thanks for listening. Outro music for this episode is provided by Missoula's Tom Catmull. This song is called The Crows. Brought my car door open with a Phillips head Put another scratch in the thing I know And there's a man with a white beard Barking at a lidded snow I got a mailbox spitting out heat bills My girl's a chihuahua when the cool wind blows It ain't all tall till they talk about the weather When it's ten below If that were my kid well, I'd have wrapped his skin and bones from head to toe. But that ain't my kid. And his poor mother's time has been fighting off the crow. Remember, you can find the podcast at www.themontanamiddle.com on Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Guitar music for the Montana Middle is provided by my talented sister, June. Thanks for listening. Take care. Four young girls walking to a party, sneaking out late so the rest don't know. Kicking up heels while laughing at the world below. Another young man drinking at a party, his friends give him hell because they all know. Lightweight Billy's got a car, but he'll probably never make it home. If that were my kid, if that were my kid, I'd well, I just don't know. But that ain't my kid, and his poor mother's time has been fighting off the crow.
that ain't mine. 